Hello and welcome to the Juan Juan Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, consider signing up for the Patreon. There you get ad-free content, early access, exclusive episodes, and monthly supporter hangouts. You can find it at patreon.com slash the Juan on Juan podcast. If you don't like the subscription-based models, there are other ways of supporting the show that are linked in the description. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode. They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus. Ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day. Knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart? Available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Welcome to the One on One Podcast with your host, Juan Ayala. These angels, you know, in Isaiah and Ezekiel, they've got the head of a lion, the head of a man, and, and the torso of a man, but they have the cloven hoof of, of a bull and a head of a bull and the head of an eagle, which is really a phoenix. Now, a phoenix is not a bird. They've been telling us that for a long time. A fire-breathing bird, it's not a bird. It's a dragon. Phoenixes are dragons. And those feathers on that angel wings, they're not bird wings, they're dragon wings. We're dealing with fiery flying dragons. That's what these angels are, the shining ones, the seraphs and the cherubim. They have reptilian qualities. So I believe a fallen reptilian chimera being who has DNA of a human in it. If you got a, a, a man's head and a human torso on you, then when God made you, he gave you some human DNA. And if you got a lion's head, you got some lion DNA and some reptilian DNA. So they're a chimera. social media at the one-on-one podcast on most social media platforms instagram being my main one tiktok twitter all that good stuff tjojp.com patreon.com slash the one-on-one podcast youtube 
wherever if you're listening to this on the rss feed make sure to leave a five-star review and if you're listening to this on youtube or rumble or rockfin wherever make sure to hit that thumbs up share with your family and friends and today we have a special guest somebody who i've learned quite a lot from over the years when i first started my podcast and i've been watching his show probably for two years now two and a half years i reached out to him a while ago but we never connected until today welcome to the show dave it's a pleasure to have you thanks for having me juan it's a pleasure to be here awesome can you uh, can you share with the people where they can find your work? I'm going to pull up your channel now so people can really, I mean, this is all really great stuff. And I mean, I can tell when somebody knows their material and when somebody's passionate about it. And I think what your YouTube channel is one of those that I, I can listen to and I have listened to hours and hours. And again, it's from a Christian standpoint, yeah. but I think that the, yep. the, the material is just as relevant and just as important as any other. So the Proto-Evangelium and the Days of Noah, make sure to check him out on there. Yeah. I'll post the link in the description. Cool. Yeah, you know, when I first started it, um, I had no experience with it. So uh, the you know first couple of videos are a little sloppy with different things. And then, as you know, Juan, just with time, you kind of start cleaning things up and, and, and growing from your experience. And so... Uh, I'm still learning how to produce the videos and, and, and make decent content, but the, the topics are, are pretty interesting. And um, like yourself, I cover just a large swath of different things. But you know, most of the things that I look at, I try to look at through a biblical context and um, try to look at it through sort of a, a Bible prophecy context. So can you, you share know. with the people what got you into this, your story, as far as your, your origin story yeah. and what got you started in this whole topic of things yeah. and researching? Well, you know, like most people, I came up with kind of a strange background. My mom was a, a believer. My dad was a hardcore atheist. And a lot of times the father can impart their faith into a, their, their children. There, there, there's a lot of power there. So my dad kind of imparted that atheism into me young. And, uh, when I had 18 years old and left the house, you know, I was a lock stock atheist, not, not an not an agnostic, not somebody who says, I'm not really sure I could go one way or the other, but I was a certain atheist and a secular humanist. And I walked that out for about 15 years. And then, you know, as I got older, got married, started having children, started, having those big existential questions about, you know, what's it all mean? And you, know, you get older, you start losing people, you know, you start, you start burying people. Uh, you, you go to bed at night and you know, you're in the grind and, and you just start having those questions. So I, in my thirties, I began searching for truth, but because I'd already had exposure to Christianity on my mom's side, and it was a very religious system and I, I don't, I don't want to get into the specific system, but it was, it was one of the different uh, denominations of Christianity. Um, it was all, all ritual, no spirit, no heart. And, um, a lot of just going through the motions and I, I call it the show up and throw up routine. And so since in my mind, I'd already tried out Christianity, I crossed that off the list and I decided to go down other spiritual pathways and, you know, there's a lot of great philosophical systems out there. I mean, you've got 
you know, Buddhism and Hinduism and Native Americanism and shamanism and you know, all kinds of different systems that have some good teachings and some good principles. But and I, I put on each of those hats and I try them out for a while, but ultimately they would end up falling short for me. And, um, you know, for me, it was kind of like a really pretty present, a Christmas present with a beautiful box and a beautiful wrapper and a beautiful bow. But once you lift the top off the box and start to really examine it for what's inside, it fell a little flat. You know, a lot of those systems didn't deal with, with sin. They didn't deal with the propitiation of sin to be washed clean of your sin. Uh, they didn't deal with sanctification, you know, being sanctified by God. They didn't deal with uh, concepts like, you know, eternal life. And, and, and of course, heaven, you know, to most people, that's kind of a, a cliche part of it. But, you know, the Bible has a lot to say about the afterlife, right? And so eventually I, I dove back into Christianity. I was at a very broken time in my life. I, I had built a, a life around me that was a huge facade. I was making good money and by worldly standards, I was, you know, doing quite well. I had the big house and the pool and a lot of other things that go along with it, but I had a hell of a lot of stress to go with it too. And then fear came in and anxiety is a powerful, powerful thing. And, uh, I began having panic attacks in my th late middle to late thirties, probably f about 15 years ago. And you know, if you've ever had a panic attack, that'll slow you down. And I'm in a pretty intense line of work, very stressful. Um, you got to be able to perform on the fly and there's a lot on the line if it goes south. And so kind of like a professional athlete, you know, I can see why some of those guys get out there and all of a sudden, you know, they're falling apart because like Tiger Woods, greatest golfer in world history, probably. But, you know, when things were not going well with him emotionally and spiritually and, you know, when he had a, a falling out with his followers, all of a sudden his game went to crap because you got to have more than just physical talent. You got to be there mentally and emotionally. So I was beginning to feel all of that burden in my life. And uh, so that, that drove me to start looking for something. And um, in the midst of having, I call it a quarter life crisis because I wasn't, I don't think I was at my midlife yet. Hopefully there was this, I call it the proverbial come to Jesus meeting. You know, I, I ended up uh, on my knees um, crying and praying, not necessarily convinced that the God I was praying to was real, but out of desperation, there was that uh, that moment of humility, you know, and the scripture says that God rejects the proud and he honors the humble. Now, up to that moment, I'd been pretty proud. I, I was one of those guys that walked around with my head up, my arms folded, my chest out, and I, I knew everything and I had it all figured out. But eventually, like I said, the fear came in and that's a powerful motivating force. You know, the funny thing about fear, there's a scripture verse that says, God doesn't give you a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. And as I began examining that verse, it, it sort of became a life verse for me because I was, I was dealing with fear. And I tried every uh, worldly thing I could to kick it. One, I mean, I quit drinking. You know, at the time I was heavy into nicotine. I started chewing tobacco when I started playing baseball at 12 years old. Um, I thought if I got rid of coffee, if I exercise more, you know, if I, if I read self-help books, I tried some yoga. I mean, I tried all the, all the physical things I could do to shake it, but it wasn't going away. 
And then when I read that verse, Second Timothy, God doesn't give you a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. A couple of things, a couple of uh, um, revelations or epiphanies came to me. One, that it was fear that I was dealing with. Two, fear is not just an emotion, but it's got a spiritual root. The Bible doesn't say that God doesn't give you fear or lust or pride. It's the spirit of fear, the spirit of lust, the spirit of pride. And so I began to realize that, wow, I've got a spiritual problem going on here. Physically, I'm fit as a fiddle. Uh, mentally, I'm pretty decent. I'm making good money. I've got, by all the worldly standards, a successful career. But there's something going on spiritually. I'm spiritually bankrupt. And it's a spirit of fear that I've allowed into my life. And so that was a big light bulb moment, you know. And then the second thing was, is that it's not from God. It's like, well, if it's not from God, where is it? And there's another force at work in this world that's projecting this fear on me. And, you know, a lot of people, they struggle with the different biblical concepts, but the Bible makes it clear that there's a spirit realm, right? And there's Satan, there's the angels, there's the demons. And, you know, a lot of people, they scoff at that too. But, you know, the reality of it is, is what, you know, what possesses a person, literally what possesses a person to go into a school with those cold, dark eyes and start pulling that you know, like it's it's like the ghost in the machine. You know, there's something there working behind it, you know, and people we, we let things in. We let things that we can't understand in. And I think I had done that, you know, by being an atheist and um, and walking through a lot of different sinful conditions that I won't elaborate on. I invited a lot of stuff in and that that became some pretty heavy baggage. And so for me, it, it led to this kind of breaking point where um I, there was a moment of confession. There was a moment of getting on my knees and I couldn't have been pushed into doing that even a month earlier. I couldn't have, you could have tried to talk me 10 ways till Sunday to go into church, read my Bible. None of that meant crap to me. I wasn't a believer, but so all that intellectual stuff meant nothing. This was coming from a broken heart and a broken soul. And so eventually I, I just out of desperation ended up, you know, on the floor and I don't, I'm not someone who cries, but that night I cried you know, like the Red River, because once you let all of those rep repressed feelings and emotions and anger and all the things that we deal with on a daily basis, once you let that one tear fall, you know, it, it's it's going to go. And so, but by that release, something really powerful happened because I did cry out to God. I did ask God to more. And this was years ago. So, you know, I don't know exactly what I said. There, there was no mysticism, Juan, you know, and people are looking for mysticism. That's why they get into the occult in the first place. They want to feel it. They want to feel the hair stand up on the back of their head. They want to feel the power, right? They want the power. And that's that that can be a wrong motivation. I was looking for um, you know, some grace and mercy. I I I needed something more than than, than feeling mysticism. So there was no uh, eureka moment. Um, there was no, you know, mysticism. But what there was was a person crying out to God praying for the first time. And, you know, I, I, I credit my mom. She, she, when we were little boys, she'd have me get on the side of the bed and fold my hands and say, you know, dear Lord, blah, blah, blah. And we, I learned how to do that. I hadn't done that in 20 something years, but that night I did. And, uh, you know, I felt, I just felt better. I felt lighter. And the next day I got up and I decided I was going to be committed to giving the Bible another look because it'd been a long time. So I began studying the Bible. I started with a new Testament. 
Well, I did like most people. I read Genesis and that's pretty interesting. And then you get into Leviticus and Deuteronomy and you're absolutely stifled by it. And you go, I'm over this. And then you skip 14 books and you hit into the New Testament. And and uh, people had told me to start with the book of John. And that's a that's a heck of a book to start with. And when I began reading it, you know, I didn't believe in Jesus. I mean, I, I heard, you know, I didn't really believe in Jesus as the Messiah. As I began reading the book, I was confronted with a decision. Who is this guy? Is he who the Bible says he is? Because right away, you know, John's talking about the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And the light came into the darkness and the darkness could not comprehend it. And I could understand that because I've been walking in darkness for years and I couldn't comprehend it either. And so for a while, I was just wrestling. And I'm one of those people who once I get into something and anyone who knows me will tell you that I don't just kind of, you know, take a look at it. I pop the hood and start pulling it apart and I want to know it, you know, front to back and top to bottom. So I began diving into the scriptures and studying them really heavily, partially from a wanting to believe, but more from a scrutinizer. And then, you know, I've been that that segued into Bible prophecy. And what I love about Bible prophecy is it, in my opinion, it begins to bring authentication. It begins to authenticate the scripture because who else could know the beginning from the end other than God? Who else could declare prophecies about the future other than God? Because God is outside of our time space continuum, right? And so he's outside of the construct and he sees the beginning from the end. Like it says in the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who's yet to come. Well, that transcends time. I'm the one who was, past tense. I am the one who is, present tense. And I am the one who's yet to come, future tense. So, so God can look down the corridor of time, and he has this foreknowledge of the future. And that's called Bible prophecy. And then what he does is through the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit, he inspires people who've been predestined through predestination and election like Jeremiah or Ezekiel or whoever. He inspired these Old Testament prophets to declare the written word or the logos. And then with time, people can study and see how that's come to pass. So, for example... There's over 200 prophecies of the coming of Jesus Christ the first time. 200 prophecies that began in the book of Genesis, written by Moses. There are prophecies written by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zechariah. You know, 500 years before Christ came, Zechariah wrote in Zechariah 9.9 that the, the Christos, the Christ, the, the anointed one who would come to save humanity, that he would enter into Jerusalem on the on a donkey and that they would say Hosanna in the highest blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so of course, Christ, you know, he fulfilled that verse to the, to the letter. Um, there were prophecies in Isaiah that say that he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be pierced through his hands and his feet for our transgressions. That was a thousand years before Christ walked this earth. There was these prophecies. David had prophecies about them. There were prophecies that they wouldn't that they would gamble for his garments. There were prophecies that they would not break his bones on the cross. There were prophecies that they would thrust a spear in his side. There were prophecies that they would pluck his beard out and put a crown of thorns on his head. There were prophecies that he would be the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. 
And so as you begin to study all these prophecies, which let me remind you, this was not written by a bunch of guys in a room. Granted, yes, you can you can make arguments about King James translations. At that time, they had all the scribes here and together. But we've through the Dead Sea Scrolls and everything, we found all these things. We have the original Isaiah scroll and the King James Version, even though it's an English translation of original Hebrew, um, it's almost authentic. And so, you know, Isaiah wasn't in the same room with David. King David was a young shepherd boy who got anointed to be the king. And he went on to defeat Goliath, and he wrote Psalm 22 about that experience. Even though I walk through the valley of death, I shall fear no evil. He, because he was going to fight Goliath, and after he slayed Goliath, he'd go on to write many of the Psalms and many of these books. And he had lots of prophecy about the coming of, of the Messiah. And so he didn't even know Joel or Zechariah. So you have all these people throughout history over the course of about 2,500 years who declared all of these prophetic future events. And we've had statisticians after statisticians calculate the odds of the statistical significance of any one particular man being able to come along and fulfill all those prophecies. And the last one I looked at was one with 40 zeros behind it. It's a number that we don't have a word for. In other words, it wasn't 50-50. It wasn't just flip a coin and, you know, old Billy Joe can fulfill these prophecies. It was one with 40 zeros behind it. That was the odds that, that Christ could fulfill all 200 prophecies. And so when you begin to realize, and I think the word that the last word that I read was one in septillion. That's, you know, you have a million, then a billion, and then a thousand billion or a trillion, and a thousand trillion or a quadrillion. And then there's something else, and then there's a septillion. And they did the statistical analysis with a chi-square where you take all of the different prophecies and you calculate it mathematically. And the analogy that they gave was if you took a stack of dimes, I want to say a foot tall, and you lined them up 80 miles long, and then you took a man and blindfolded him, and you marked one of those dimes in that 80-mile pile with a black Sharpie and put it back in, he has one in one septillion odds of picking the right dime. Now, I don't know about you, Juan, but that's, that's, that's astounding. And so Bible prophecy is what turned me into a real believer, which is interesting because in the book of Revelation, it says that uh, the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus Christ. And it's exactly right because this is what's fascinating. For every prophecy of the coming of the Messiah the first time in the Old Testament, there's two prophecies for the second coming, which hasn't even happened yet. And so if you study Bible prophecy and you have a decent understanding, granted, there's a lot of room for interpretation, and we know that. There's 42,000 different denominations of Christianity, folks. Think about that. Two guys get together, they disagree about one stinking thing, they split hairs and split off and make a new denomination. That's the problem, right? Men are the problem, and I get that. Um, but uh, so anyway, I, I, I digress. I've been talking for 10 minutes straight there, Juan. Um, <laughs> no worries, uh, Dave. I could, I could listen to you talk for hours and I have on your, on your channel. I mean, again, you bring forward, you know your stuff. And then this is why we're here today. And at the end of it all, so you have this epiphany, I guess, right? And, and I'm, I'm just thinking about, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I did... I was raised religiously. Now, I'm not 
I wouldn't call myself a practicing Christian. I do believe sure. in in God. Right? I do believe in God. Sure. Uh, I do believe that there was a Jesus Christ. I do believe all that. Yep. Now, what I don't subscribe to is the dogmatic views of the mainstream religion, because I do think it is sure. a brokered experience. And I, and I cut my teeth, and what really opened up this whole realm of the esoteric and the occult was religion for me. I spent a lot of years yeah. at my church playing guitar. I was part of the worship group for a lot of years. And when I started to see the corruption and the hypocrisy, really, of people, that's what turned me off. So when I started to ask the hard questions as well, uh, how you mentioned, hey, what's up? Hey, Grandma, what's up with the Dead Sea Scrolls? Or what's up with the Gospel of Judas? Or what's up with all the, the Book of Enoch? Well, what's all this about, right? The, yeah. the cool stuff. The cool stuff yeah. that they don't cover right. at the church. The fun stuff. Yeah, the fun stuff. And then I started to dive down the rabbit hole of the Gnostics and Gnosticism. And I go, wait a minute. When I started to step back and say, hey, there was, so there are stories that go completely against what I was taught, right? And how you're saying there's, there's last I checked, I saw 44,000 denominations of Christianity. So how you're saying we go back and forth and you have the, the interesting and peculiar case of of King James, which if, if you want to go down that whole rabbit hole, right, he was a shady character surrounded with shady people, right, that whole conspiracy. Sure. So the idea that maybe it's been infiltrated, but you touch on a good yep. point because it, it, it was. A lot of the, the verses in Scripture was confirmed with the Dead Sea Scrolls. That was one of the things that a lot of people don't talk about with the Nag Hammadi Library where there there were scrolls that were found that confirmed a lot of information that yep. we already had so and i'm thinking yep. right now of how you were talking about your your change and i talk a lot about alchemy and how the magnum opus which can be symbolic for a few different things i mean i think i think yeah. jesus could have been an alchemist i mean he was turning water into wine he was doing a whole bunch of things that were supernatural were magical. I mean, they, they were magical, right? It, it is. There's a metaphysical aspect to all this. So, miracle signs and wonders. Miracle, yeah, exactly. And I've seen miracles, Dave. I've seen things happen in front of me in the church. I know when the Holy Spirit is, you know, in the house when it's when it's roaming around, and it's a real phenomenon. I mean, I've felt but, it. But here's the important thing, Juan. Here's the important thing in the book of Revelation. It talks about how the Antichrist and false prophet, when they come back to deceive the world. They will use lying signs, miracles, and wonders. The word lying is pseudo. The reason that's important is it makes it clear in the, in the New Testament, in the four Gospels, that the reason why Jesus did the miracles is so that people would believe. They would not believe that he was the Christ just by saying it. He had to prove it to them. He had to control the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He had to raise Lazarus from the dead. Um, he had to heal the leper. And it's and it says time and time again that people would believe because they saw, right? They needed to see. And so Satan and the fallen side, the occult world, the other spirit, right? Because there's the Holy Spirit of God and there's this unholy satanic spirit. They're counterfeiters. So they know that the only way to get people to accept the false Christ that's coming in the last days and receive everything that comes with it is through counterfeit pseudo signs, miracles, and wonders. And so you, I stress that because you have to still assess what spirits behind the wonders, right? What spirits behind the healing? I've seen many people in the occult get healed. I've done many videos on people like in, 
you know, I hate to pick on any particular group, but, you know, AA, for example, mm-hmm. and other organizations, uh, you know, when you study them at their core, you know, the, 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 the um, 10 principles of AA was uh, uh, dictated, um, channeled, you know, so it's channeled doctrines from a spirit guide. And so to some people, that's going to be fine. And, you know, that's their business. That's their prerogative. I'm not here to tell anybody what they got to do. I'm, I'm, I'm sharing my testimony and what I've learned. So I, I take it from a biblical perspective. So I'm always going to go back to the scripture. It, it warns you against necromancy. It warns you against spiritism. It warns you against communicating with the dead. The Bible calls them familiar seducing spirits. You're not talking to your dead grandma. You're talking to a familiar seducing spirit and you're opening a doorway into the second heaven or the spirit realm and you're allowing something to come through. And then just like in any cult, it begins to work in your life, move in your life. You've given it the keys to the kingdom. You've opened up the door and said, come on in through a spiritual sense. And so I love studying the occult and I love studying mysticism, all that too, but I'm very cautious with it. But, um, I just wanted to throw that in for your listeners uh, about the lying signs and wonders, because just because a miracle is done, you still have to kind of discern the source of the miracle. Yes. Because there's power on both sides of this equation, right? Absolutely. And it's making me think of Simon Magus when he tried to buy the Holy Spirit. And right, hey, that's exactly the right. Father of all, which heresies. is where we get the word magician. Yeah, exactly. Right, Magus. Magus is the origin of magician. Yes, exactly. And, and uh, the story that I was going to bring up was uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel, where, oh, where it, it. And again, I'm not 100 percent familiar with it. So you, uh, I've talked about it before on the show with an ex, with an ex evangelist friend of mine yeah. who who yeah. was in that whole realm of things, and he really he knows. I mean, he knows the scripture, and he broke it down to where I believe it was he hurt his arm. But it was like in this weird way where he just the, the angel just didn't hurt his arm, but it quite literally changed his DNA and kind of formed yeah. him and turned him into something else that he wasn't otherwise when he was, you know, before he started wrestling with the angel. And it's kind of like yeah. your experience where you wanted to, you, you were kind of opposing it. Like, mm, is it kind of real? And I know a lot of people yeah. who go into this realm of things to try and debunk it and they end up becoming more believers than anything, yeah. because if any if anything I've learned at the end of all this, like at the end of of all the occult knowledge that I know and the esoteric and stuff like that, it's God is at the core of it all. I mean that that's and, yeah. and a lot of people don't want to admit that because it's not it's not cool, right? It's not yeah, it's not hip, right? yeah. Jesus, but hey, right. I mean that's what it's all about at the end of the day, and 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 yeah. it's the light side versus the dark side, and I'd rather be part of absolutely the light side. I mean, we see this in movies with the, with the Star Wars series, the, the light side and the dark side, the Sith or the Jedi. Like, who are you gonna be? Yeah, or you want to be the good guys yeah. or the bad guys? And and yeah, so I was just thinking this whole time when you were telling. And there's me, a lot of typology in that movie, Juan. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. um, a ton of typology there. You've got uh, the Jedi, which one of the fastest growing religions is Jediism. And it, it was birthed, now I'm not joking, it was birthed out of Star Wars. See, Star Wars is, if you study the people who did Star Wars, they, knew the they were pantheists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they were pantheists, and so they believe that instead of, like, for example, the Bible teaches that God is our Father, right? And that He's personal, and that He loves you, and He cares about you, and He made you in His image, and that He you know, has something for you in the future. He's a personal God. Well, pantheism, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, and Jediism 
is that God is just an impersonal force. He's not mm-hmm. a personal being, a spirit, but he's an impersonal force. He doesn't care about you per se. He's an impersonal force that you have to learn to tap into. And if you can open up your mind and enter into transcendental uh, meditation and occultism and tap into this universal chi force, right? That's what they call it, chi force. That's where the writers of Star Wars got the word force from. They got it from the chi force of Buddhism and Taoism. Then you can wield that force at your will and levitate and control people's minds and you can become what they refer to as your own Christ. This is the Christ consciousness they're talking about. Totally antithetical to the biblical Christ. In other words, they deny the fact that Jesus Christ is the son of God who came in the flesh. God became incarnate in flesh and then sacrificed his life on the cross as a redemption plan. And rather they relegate Jesus to kind of like an alchemist. He's just a regular cat who tapped into this impersonal force and he ascended through this Kundalini awakening and had his own Nirvana experience (laughs) and he became his own Christ. He became his own God, the God within. And then he had all these powers and if you follow that principle, you can become, you don't have to serve God. You don't have to worship God. And you don't have to honor the creator who made heaven and earth and who stitched you together in your mother's womb and gave you a future and a creation. But rather you can evolve through this apotheosis and become your own God. And maybe you can be worshiped. It's a lot about self um, enlightenment and self worship. Whereas Christianity is more of, um, you know, you know, Christianity is not very popular because it's like, you know, whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it. And he who wants to, or he who's prepared to lose his life is going to save it. Mm. So it's about putting others first and putting yourself last. And God doesn't demand, you know, unlike a lot of um, religions where the bloodthirsty God, you have to go and sacrifice the baby to Baal and Moloch or all the pagan systems of the past. You got to do all the hard work, the heavy lifting. God sacrifices himself. He actually lets his own creation crucify him, and he prophesizes it thousands of years in advance. Um, through their free will, they choose to you know, crucify him. And that, that brings us to the Proto-Evangelium, which is kind of segues back to how, you know, I, I, after I kind of had my own personal epiphany and my own, and, and I will say this, Juan, what you t- touched on earlier is very true, but I wasn't necessarily coming at it as a um, to dis to debunk it, like the traditional C.S. Lewis who was absolutely convinced it was a lie, and then in the midst of studying it, he came to the truth. I was broken. I was broken spirited, spiritually bankrupt, and cried out to God, and and then out of desperation began to read it. But I did it through skepticism because I had always been an atheist, mm-hmm. but I wanted it to be true. But I just it just I'm a you know, I'm an intelligent guy. It, it just had, I, I couldn't accept it in my mind, right? I just, I couldn't accept that that was true. And that took some time of wrestling with that until eventually I did receive that. And there was a moment through my own study and my own time where the light, for me, I literally went, I think everything I'm reading here is true. I think Jesus is the son of God. I think God who designed it all mm-hmm. and who's outside of it all decided to bring him, incarnate himself into the system to save everyone in it. And that's what the Proto-Evangelium is that we'll look at it. And and through his sacrifice, we can be saved. The problem is, like you said, with the religion, I mean, the religions, you know, the church for, for centuries, for decades, for, for millennia, it's just been about controlling you and your and money, money, you know. And, oh, man, you know, and that's why Jesus himself says the root of all evil, right? Even in his day, he was dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees who on the Passover event 
were making a lot of money because a million people traveled to Jerusalem for the holy days of Passover. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees had to sell them pigeons and lambs or whatever the case may be to atone for their sin. All those people came with money. And if they all had to buy their way into the temple to get cleansed of the sin. Whoa. And this is why Je this is why Jesus came against them and said, you turned my father's house into a den, a, of a den of thieves. And he turned over the money changers because he understands that these religious people who are exactly like some guys right now who are flying in, in, in jets and living in mansions, <laughs> they're taking advantage of the vulnerable, right? And when you see the level of hypocrisy right now, the church is the most wicked thing on earth. It's we live in United States of Babylon. Mm -hmm. One, I mean, literally, there's more church houses on every corner from coast to coast in this country than the whole world combined. Tax free, and yet we lead the world. We lead the world in everything. You name it, we lead it. I don't care what it is: child pornography, divorce, bestiality, incest, murder. Um, greed, you, you, you pick something, incarceration, we lead it all. And yet we got one of these little lighthouses on every corner where people are supposed to be coming and getting <laughs> saved. And I, I say this, and yet I, I still go into a church house every week, Juan, because I found a little small church that I liked. Actually, it's not that small, but, and you know, I just, I tried to stay away, but I'm trying to raise my kids with a biblical worldview. That's the problem. And I like the, I like the, yeah. yeah, I like the worship music. I, the, he, he preaches a good biblical message. Um, he, he talks a little bit about repentance and trying to you know pick up your cross and follow after me. Most of the uh, gospel message today is the cotton candy gospel. It's the ear tickling gospel. You can do whatever you want, live however you want. You can live like the devil six days a week. If you come in and say the name of Jesus, you're good to go. And then you can walk back out, cheat on your wife. And the pastor could be banging the, the, the assistant over there. And, and everybody's getting the money in it. It's, so when people see this, there's so, there's so much disdain that they throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? They're done. They're done with religion. They're done with Christianity. And then someone else shows up with another New Age gospel about you becoming your own God and tapping into this chi and becoming enlightened and, and Zen. And it sounds good. Zen doesn't deal with uh, all that terrible stuff you've been doing in the dark. Zen doesn't do with the fact that one day you're going to meet your maker and Zen's not going to make you right in the eyes of the Almighty, but it sounds good on paper and people are drawn to that. And once you tap into the occult and you, you, you enter into the transcendental meditation, you get into Buddhist style and you open your mind and you start to do the ohms and you, oh, and you, and you start inviting these different things in, then you start to get the mysticism. And now you start to feel it. Mm -hmm. you, feel the kun, you feel the Kundalini serpent rising up the chakras and now you're feeling some power you're starting to feel some power and once you get the power whew, damn it's hard to let go of that and 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 so you know and i'm not trying to be condescending towards that because i've walked through all that because in the midst before i came into christianity i dabbled into freemasonry i've been to a a hooded ritual before one when I was 18 years old and didn't know what the hell was going on, but just wanted to fit in with everybody. There wasn't any blood folks. No, no, no animal sacrifice, no human sacrifice, but I've, 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 I have studied witchcraft books with intention on doing spells 25 years ago. I've walked into, I've done videos on my series about back in my San Francisco rave days on NMDA and ecstasy. I mean, EDM. I've explored, yeah, I've explored a lot of stuff and gone deep into a lot of different realms 
So I'm not just the theoretical who's standing on this side of the fence. I've, I've, I've hugged both sides of the fence. And for me, at almost, you know, I'm 49, so getting, I'm knocking on a half century. This is where I've landed. And these are the experiences that have taken me there. And I, this is what my series is about, is, is kind of about some of these topics. And I do try to do it through a biblical lens. And, you know, I don't, I try to be respectful of other people's beliefs because I realize that if you'd have come to me 15 years ago, I was a full-blown atheist. And, and you know, so I, I wouldn't have heard anything that you had to say. And, and so I, I try not to condemn other people or other systems, but I do try to point out the differences yeah. and maybe some pit, some pitfalls in them, you know, for people that I've seen. Yeah. So, and, and, and again, yeah, I, I respect everyone's beliefs. And that, that one of the issues is that you want to raise your family with a base, right? With a solid base yeah. because... And that's yes. where I'm at, right? I raising my kids regardless of what I believe, but I'm giving yeah. them that base of belief of having a system because I do believe that religion serves its purpose as far as guiding somebody. What are the Ten Commandments? Don't be a piece of crap. At the end of the, yeah. at the end of the, don't kill. Don't yeah. be a good person. Be a good uh, yeah. contributing citizen to society, and don't be a piece of garbage. Which I think that. People, again, they get lost in the sauce with these intricacies as far as like all these different denominations. And I don't think it's about that. Yeah. I think that's done by design, Dave. I think that's done by design as far as to really no draw people away. So I agree. when you're talking about, again, nothing to nothing against secret societies. One of my co-hosts is a Mason. And I mean, he's a good guy. And again, whatever people want to do when they get together, whatever happens between consenting adults happens. And, and as long as they're, I always say, as long as you don't involve the children, I'm good. You know what I'm saying? Like as long as some of my favorite people, I have some really close people in my life that are Masons and I had to reconcile that in my studies. And what I found with over a decade of intensive study is, is you're dealing with a secret society within a secret society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now, now you're taking another level. Remember that movie inception yep. with Leonardo DiCaprio, where a dream inside of a dream inside of a dream. Um, you know, when you're a secret society within a secret society, now you're capulating on something because all the lower level Masons are doing wonderful things. They're building churches for kids yeah. for crying out loud. And they're helping all kinds of people and they're getting together on the weekends and, and they're not, they're not doing anything satanic at all. But as you, in my experience, as you climb the link of the ranks of the Freemasons, you do begin to enter into the, you slowly begin to enter into that Luciferian initiation where, you know, kind of like on the dollar bill, that symbol, right? So that's a Masonic symbol. You've got the 13-step unfinished pyramid, the words Novus Ordo Seculorum, New Secular Order, New Order of the Ages, the New World Order system that's coming. At the top of that is the all-seeing eye, the eye of providence, but we know it's really the eye of Lucifer, the eye of Horus. Um, and then, you know, it's got the rays of illumination shining out because he's the one, they call him the great architect of the universe. He's the one guiding the affairs of man. And as you do the initiations, the secret initiations, and you grow in your esoteric knowledge, you can climb the ranks until eventually at the top, you got to take the Luciferian initiation. And that's where I think it can get very dangerous from people. But, um, so, but again, yeah, I mean, I got friends that are Masons, you know, and, and, and I have people in my business life that are Masons and, you know, it is what it is. They're mm. going to do what they're going to do and they're going to believe what they're going to believe. And so can you tell us a little bit about the proto evangelium? And then when we break that down for us, cause I had never heard about that until yeah, I came across. Yeah. So, um, so it's, it's, uh, it's straightforward, but complicated like everything in the Bible. <laughs> right. Um, the word proto means first, right? Prototype. 
you're going to build a car, you make a prototype. Evangelium is is the word where we get the word evangelist. What is it to go out and evangelize somebody? It means to share them the good news of Jesus Christ, right? That he died for your sins and that his blood has the power to wash you clean and make you as, as white as snow. So evangelium is good news. Proto is first. So what is it? It's the first prophecy being declared of the good news that a savior is coming, folks. A savior is coming. And it's in the Garden of Eden of all places. Right out of the gate, the representatives of humanity, Adam and Eve, put their foot in some quicksand and they got, they, they partaked of the forbidden fruit, wink, wink, whatever that is. And we could spend, you know, just countless episodes diving into that. And so they, they partook of the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I think we've all taken a bite out of that tree, Juan. Um, you know, me and you are interested in learning and we're interested in knowledge and, and, you know, you're a humble guy and, and you're doing it in the right way. And I try to do it the same way, but knowledge can be very dangerous. Solomon wrote an entire book on it, right? Ecclesiastes knowledge puffs up. And in the end of his life, he said it was all vanity because it led him away from God. So, and I've had this happen to me many times. So we, it, it, like everything, there's a balance, right? But, um, so that tree of knowledge of good and evil is something that the enemy offers. He's offering independence from God, the knowledge, the gnosis, good and evil. Come and get it. Take a bite of it. And then you can learn it for yourself. And then you can start to apply it for yourself. You can decide what's good and evil. Instead of having the almighty God and the creator of everything who's given sort of a base, like you said earlier, take the Ten Commandments, for example. Those are abhorred by most people in society now. They don't want to post those anywhere. They take for granted for the fact that every single civilized society that exists on planet Earth today, the only reason it's civilized is because its roots come from a system where you don't go over there and take your wife's, take your neighbor's wife or kill him or gossip on him or covet. Like without these basic fundamental commandments, you would have chaos on this earth. And we're all living in societies where I have the privilege of driving home tonight and hopefully no one's going to murder me. It's illegal or take my wife. They still will in this country. But, and the reason that all that exists is because there was this fundamental 10 commandments. So, um, but anyway, let me, let me get back to the garden. So we have this knowledge, this tree of knowledge of good and evil, and we have the tree of life, right? And we know that Adam and Eve were, well, Eve was beguiled. She was deceived by the serpent. We're told, you know, that this serpent came into the garden. And we're not given a lot of details about the serpent. Later, the serpent is cursed to be on his belly, which insinuates when he came into the garden, he came in on his feet. Most likely, we're dealing with a bipedal serpent being, Right, And the Bible is using a word for him. The Hebrew, which is very important to go back to, is the nakash. And the nakash has a noun form and a verb form. The noun form is a serpent or something serpent-like, right? Now, so now we're cooking with gas, Dave. Now we're cooking with gas. I see yeah, where you're going. Some, <laughs> some, something reptilian. That's what a serpent <laughs> is, right? Something reptilian came into the garden that day. And that reptilian creature was in, imbued with power. Because we're told in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, before the fall of Lucifer, the light bearer, who when he, was, when he tried to usurp God in the third heaven, in the, in the highest heaven, back in the beginning of creation, somewhere back in that day, it says that he was the anointed cherub that covereth. 
he and that word anointed is Mashiach. It's the same one used. Well, it's a similar der derivation of the one used for Christ. It says that Lucifer was the most the most wise, the most beautiful, and then he sinned. So God made these angels. He created them on day two, somewhere in there, and he gave them free will like he did us. And at that point in time, at the beginning of creation, there was no sin. But through free will, just like if me and you did an experiment right now, if we could create something and give it free will, like, for example, AI, when AI reaches the technological singularity and becomes self-aware and it's got free will, you can take it to the bank that it's going to sin because it's got the freedom to do it. And everything that's been created other than God that has free will is going to sin, guaranteed. And so Lucifer wasn't happy being under the Most High God. And so he sinned against the Most High God. And in Isaiah 14, we're told, Isaiah quotes Lucifer. If you want to hear the exact words of the fallen angel, just read the five eyes in Isaiah 14. I will ascend above the throne of God. I will sit at the top of the mount of the congregation. I will sit above the clouds of the Most High. Yeah, You ever met someone who wants to be number one? They, they have a passion, right? That narcissistic person. They're not grateful for being number two or number three. They got to they gotta go to the top. So this is who we're dealing with, Lucifer. He wants to be worshipped. He wants to be like God. And so um, he gets cast out, right? God rejects the proud. He rejects Lucifer and he casts him out. And Lucifer then descends from the higher heavenly realms to the lower heavenly realms, which I would equate to what we look up in the night, whether you want to call that the firmament or space or the cosmos or whatever you want to call it, the, where the starry abode and the celestial bodies exist uh, in the sky. And so he's in this second heaven environment. And, um, and then eventually he comes down to uh, the garden where Adam and Eve have been created. And Adam was made after God's own image and his own likeness, right? So God is the potter and we are the clay. And God, the word Adam uh, means basically the clay of the earth. God used the clay of the earth and he formed the vessel of Adam. And then he breathed through his nostrils and filled him up with the living spirit, right? Up to that moment, he was just a vessel, just like a pot. He didn't have anything valuable inside of him, right? He was, he, he was just a, an, an animated clay vessel. And then God breathed the life, the breath, the pneuma. The breath of life was breathed into Adam. And when the spirit hit the flesh, then the soul was born. The soul is the mind, the will, and the emotions. So the Bible says that we are tripartite. There's, we have three layers to us. We have a flesh body, which houses our spirit. And those two together create the soul. It's kind of like a lamp with a bulb that you plug in and it shines light, right? kind of hard to explain but like i got a lamp i plug it in and i've got a light bulb and then there's light that's being emitted from it so it's kind of like you know no one can put their hands around it, the tripart nature of man but that's what it is so god made adam as his representative and he gave him dominion over this place called earth and then he basically did the first operation and he cloned adam and he made a carbon copy version of adam by giving it eve only he made a female version and obviously when god makes humanity we now know that he does it through DNA. That's not the word they use in the Old Testament because they don't know what the hell DNA was 5,000 years ago. They use a different word. They use the word seed. The word in the Hebrew is zera. It actually means semen. 
or that which produces a genealogical record or a posterity. That's a seed line or a bloodline, right? And that has a lot to do with the word Genesis. The root word of Genesis is gene. It's not that the word Genesis comes from the word genetic or generation. It's the opposite. All those things come from Genesis. Every word that has the root word gene in it, whether it be progeny, future offspring, or um, genetic or generation or genealogy, all of those words derive from the word Genesis. What the word Genesis essentially means is this is the genetic story and the genealogical record of humanity, which God created in his own image and his own likeness and breathed life into, and then bestowed the greatest gift in ever, which is the power to reproduce. Not only did God, who's this infinite omniscient being, create heaven and earth, and he put the star in the sky and the sun and the moon in the sky and did everything that we read about in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. The spirit hovered over the darkness and, you know, let there be light and it was good. Not only did he create everything, but then he made his represent his representative, his, his model, right, his icon, his representative, and then he breathed life into it. And now it's like a little piece of him walking around. And then he made a female to complement the male, and then he said, now the two become one flesh. And I mean, that's powerful. And we got 8 billion people running around the planet right now, although there's been a lot of people killed off in the last so many years. But uh, there's, so we have so many people living on the planet right now, and we've come so far down the line that we've taken all this for granted. We've taken this idea of like birth for granted. The, the miracle of birth and that there was a time when there was no people. There was a time when there was just the first man and woman. Everything has to have a beginning, right? So there was a time, whether you subscribe to it being 5,000 years ago or 500,000 years ago, there was a time when it started and there was the first people and the first family and the first birth. And so this tree of knowledge, there's a huge debate and argument about what it is. But at one point in time, I began to believe that it had to do with sexual knowledge. It has to do with a lot of different knowledge, the knowledge of sin, but it had to do with sexual knowledge. This In the Old Testament, when you would have relations with someone, you would know them. You know, uh, Adam would might know Eve, and she would conceive, right? And then when, he, when, he had, when God made Adam and Eve, what did he tell them to do, Juan? He told them, be fruitful and multiply. Well, what does it mean to be fruitful? It means to bear fruit in your womb, right? What is a garden? A garden is a place that you plant a seed and then a seed grows up and it bears fruit, right? And all, all throughout the scripture, we're, we're, we're always being told of these analogies all the way up through the New Testament. You know, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the fruit. You must abide in me because if obviously if a piece of fruit disconnected from the vine, it's not going to grow anymore, right? It, it's lost its power from the sap of the tree. So there's a lot to do with trees and fruit in the Bible, but so this idea that there's going to be this tree of knowledge of good and evil and this young, naive, chaste virgin is going to have her eyes open to the knowledge of good and evil. And she's no longer going to be naive. Um, the word beguiled means to seduce. You know, the serpent was the wisest creature that God ever made. That's the way it reads. That, be as wise that as serpents. Yeah, well, right. Be as, and Jesus said that, be as wise as serpent and as gentle as a dove. And that's not easy to walk out, by the way. 
I've tried. It, it don't work. I mean, it, it's possible, but it takes it takes discipline, right? To be as wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove in all circumstances. I mean, that that's difficult. So, um, and there's a lot of different serpent things throughout the Bible that we could talk about that, you know, if we have time. But so getting back to this garden, you know, and I don't want it to, I want to try to get to some important stuff. Um, so Adam and Eve are in the garden and, and they've been given all, you know, everything, this paradise. And they've only got basically one rule, which Adam was given, which is not to eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And I believe that I used to think that it was just symbolic of Satan. This tree of knowledge of good and evil represents Satan or Lucifer. And that the tree of life represents Jesus Christ, who, you know, Jesus is the bread of life and life comes through Christ. So, and, and I do believe that they're symbolic. But for me, it always had to be, well, they're either a literal tree or they're symbolic. But now I've learned most of the time that it's, it's can be both. It can, you know, so I believe that there was a literal, you know, there's a literal Garden of Eden with a literal Adam and a literal Eve and literal trees. But then also they have a deep, mysterious, symbolic representation that the Bible goes out of its way to uncover. I mean, to cover, right? It's veiled. You know, that's the thing about the Garden of Eden. It's been veiled on purpose for all of humanity to stumble through and study and, 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 and wrestle with. And I think it has to do with creation. I think when, um, you know, something happened in the garden that shamed Adam and Eve, they, when, they, when they were in there, they were perfect. They weren't going to die. They weren't going to sin. And we know that the first one who committed sin, as the Bible says, as Jesus said, Satan is the father of lies and the first murderer. And he, he relates the first murder of, of Satan to connected to Cain, which we'll get into. Cain, who was of the devil. Um, so um, can we pause real quick, so, Dave? Because because yeah. a few things happen and, I, and you just insinuated at something that I've heard before that maybe Cain was of actually came from the serpent. Have you heard of, of that theory before? Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's an appalling, yeah. it's an absolutely appalling a, topic yeah. to most Juan, because it personalizes it. Anybody who's really studied the old Testament knows with 99.999% certainty that the fallen angels took the daughters of men in Genesis six copulated with them and created the hybrids the nephilim and that's why the flood came right mm -hmm. and we'll get in we'll, we'll, we'll try to get into that but um so here a lot of people will subscribe to that and that's the absolute truth but they don't have a problem with it because they're unnamed angels and they're unnamed daughters of men the moment that you back it up three chapters and you personalize it mm. and you say it's lucifer the fallen angel and eve who's like your sister now, all of a sudden, it becomes a, a disdain for people to accept. Ah, I got you. I got you. Okay. That's something that I've kind of noticed anecdotally. And you'll get people all day. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, yeah, I understand what, exactly what you're saying. And then before that, when she takes of the fruit and you have the famous, they have become like one of us. Is that, is that three, yeah. two, two? Is that, is that the right one? Yeah. Maybe they, so that they become like God or yeah, they become gods like us. Yeah. yeah. What do you, right. what, what's it's plural? Yeah. What's your take on that? Was it? Cause I've, I've heard people say, oh, it's the Holy Trinity, right? It's the Trinity. I don't, I don't personally think that is, I, I am a Trinitarian in the sense that 
the Bible just over and over has God the Father. Even in the book of Revelation, you have God the Father sitting on the throne, you know, with a, with a rainbow over him and the crystal glass river and all the, the 12 thrones around him with a, the elders and the golden crowns dressed in white and all the holy angels saying, holy, 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 you know, Lord God Almighty. And we, we were given examples of what the third heaven looks like with the most high God, that he was as white as, a you know, snow and he had eyes of flaming fire and his voice sounded like thunder and lightning and when you read it i think it's revelation five or five or six you know when you put yourself there it's it's a very powerful majestic environment and then jesus steps up john says who is worthy to open the seals we're talking about the seals in the mm -hmm. last days the seven seals who's worthy and it says that um no one could even look at the scroll John and the angels couldn't even look at the scroll. They're, they're not even worthy enough to look at it. But there was only one who was worthy. And it was the lamb who had been slain since the foundation of the earth. And this is the crucified and now resurrected and glorified Messiah, Jesus Christ, who is the only one worthy. He's the only one that climbed up on that cross, spilled his blood and said, it is finished. Debt paid in full. He's the only one that's got the power to open the seals. And so when you begin to see these things like, okay, there's God, the father, and at his right hand is the son, Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says when he, when he's resurrected and then on Pentecost, he tells the 12, I'm going up to heaven and it's good for you that I do this because I'm going to send you the great comforter or he ends up ascending before that. And then on Pentecost, the Holy spirit comes down in cloven tongues and they begin speaking in tongues and they have this power, the power of the Holy spirit. This is the third person he's referred to with that pronoun. Mm. Jesus says, I'm going to send him to you. You know, people get into these, this is back to this denominational thing. They're going to split 50 hairs about something that none of us can put our arms around. I don't understand the Trinity. I can't understand the three in one. I know that the Bible makes it clear. There's God, the father, and then there's Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, which, by the way, in the Greek is monogenes, one of a kind genetics. And that has to do with the proto evangelium that I want to get back to. But, you know, I, I, I get sidetracked, you know, and go in different directions. One, so for you and your listeners, forgive me. Welcome to and the club. And then there's the Holy Spirit. Yeah, welcome to the club. Yeah, welcome to the, <laughs> welcome to the club. Thanks, man. So. So I didn't mean back, to derail you, but back to, to the serpent, you have... In the, the idea of personalizing it, a lot of people take that the wrong way. But then we have right. this lineage, right, of Cain, who was of Lucifer, of Satan, or right. the devil, whoever you want to call him. But this yeah. idea that the fallen angel, yeah, the the, the that's where you left off with Cain, uh, Abel. So, Cain. so let's get back to that word Nakash. The 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 English translation, which was in what the fifteen and sixteen hundreds. Um, is the word serpent. That's the closest word to fit. The original Hebrew that comes from like the Textus Receptus and the other ancient texts, which is um, nakash. It's a Hebrew word that means serpent. The verb form is very important because the verb, a verb is the action, right? The verb means the action. A noun is a person, place, or thing. A verb is an action, what it does. So what does the serpent do? And it is a diviner, a soothsayer, a charmer, a prognosticator, one who looks at the stars and makes predictions, one who whispers in your ear and places you under a spell. So we're dealing with witchcraft right out of the gate. Satan is the father or the Nakash. We'll, we'll call him the, the serpent in the garden. This fallen being who's come down, whoever he is, whatever his reptilian nature is, he is a diviner. 
he's a charmer. What does that mean? Um, it's, it's the pharmakia. You know, that's, we, we see that word being thrown around now. The pharmakia, it's where we get the word pharmacy from in, in, in Revelation 18.23 about the last days. Mystery Babylon. All nations of the earth will be deceived with the pharmakia, the sorcery, a mind-altering spell being placed on through medication or roots or herbs. I'll let your audience use their imagination on some they of that. Know. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Venom. Yeah, very good. So, so the diviner that came into the garden is going to place a spell over you. That's what I believe. That's the action verb. And if you actually look up the word nakar, or if you look up the word enchantment in the Old Testament, it's the it's the Strong's Concordance derivation of nakash. So, when the Bible says, "Be careful about dabbling in witchcraft and necromancy, speaking to the dead, and root roots and herbs, and and, and mixing potions, and doing magic and things of that nature," be careful because the source of it is the one who came into the garden. And so I believe that he used the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which was a tree that had fruit, that when Eve partook of that fruit, it placed her under a spell. And there's a lot of, you know, kind of like, and I, I we could get into this, but it would be a big off segment. But so there's a lot of different roots and herbs, right? There's everything from mescaline, peyote, um, ayahuasca tea, things that cause, put you in a transcendental state. Um, you could think of this as the world's oldest date, date drug. That the reason Eve is told not to partake of the one tree, that by the way, Eve says that when she saw the tree and that the fruit was pleasant to her eyes and that it would make one wise, she partook. And of course, God, or of course, the serpent offered her a promise there too, right? The serpent offers her the fruit. She says, no, God told us not to do it. And then the serpent contradicts God and says, he didn't say you couldn't do it. He knows it's, be, it's because he knows that in the day that you do it, that your eyes will become open and you'll become like God. So he played on her emotions. He played on her pride. We all want that gnosis. We all want that knowledge. We all want to be like God. This is what Lucifer did to get cast out of heaven in the first place. And so now he's going to do it to God's representatives in the garden. He wants to get them to fall too. And God knew that he would, because that's when you study the scripture, it makes it clear since the foundation of the earth, he knew. He just, God's omniscient. Nothing passes through God. Nothing slips through his net. He's not surprised by anything. So he knew that it would happen. And so he did. Something happened in the garden. She ate the fruit. She got placed under a spell or an enchantment. And then something happened. And that's a mystery. Could it have been sexual? Possibly. Um, if it was sexual, the very next verse is the Proto-Evangelium. The moment that she convinces Adam to partake of the forbidden fruit, and he symbolically enters into this, um, the moment that that happens, they fall right from grace. Uh, they change spiritually. They die spiritually. Um, the Holy Spirit is removed from them, and they, they have a disconnection from, from God, and they die physically because now programmed cellular death has entered in. Something genetic has happened in the garden. Something that changed them from these light, eternal beings to these physical, incarnate, fallen, fleshly beings who are now programmed to sin and programmed to die. And they're shamed and they're exiled. It says, 
um, you know, that God sends some cherubim angels to cast them out and protect the tree of life so that they wouldn't stay in this condition. Because when you eat from the tree of life, it brings eternal life. And if they were to receive eternal life after that fall, they would be permanently shamed with the law of sin and the law of death. So they're cast out of the garden. Even though they're cast out, God hasn't turned his back on them. But they're, they're, they, they've, they've fallen from grace, and so they're cast out. But before they're cast out, the very first prophecy in the Bible that is a prophecy that will go all the way through from Genesis to Revelation is declared. And this is when God, who walks with Adam in the garden, and I believe that's the pre-incarnate Christ. We have all kinds of what's called Christophanies. This is when Christ, who was present in the Old Testament before he was incarnate through Mary 2,000 years ago in history, the pre-incarnate Christ who was walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, he came to, you know, to, to talk with him. And what did they do? Well, they realized they were naked. That's interesting. They realized that they were naked. And when you begin looking at a lot of the words in the Hebrew about that account, like the word naga, which means to make one, to touch one and make one naked. Um, um, uh, when you, when you see that they, they, uh, realized that they had shame because they were naked and they were they were ashamed of their genitals and that they went and and hid their genitals with with fig leaves or whatever leaves that they had like it's just interesting because it's like children who don't have any consciousness of nakedness then at some point they begin to develop this consciousness right and it's like hey no one told me but i just instinctively know it's written on my DNA. It's it's encoded in my blueprint that you don't you know whip out your willy and walk around and and show these body parts. And so all of a sudden, Adam and Eve now there's this level of shame regarding their reproductive organs, which is interesting, right? Their genitalia, which the root word gene, of course, comes from the word genesis. <laughs> yeah. Their genitalia is now exposed, Juan, and they've got to cover their genitals. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, they're told to be fruitful, and multiply now. All right. So they've been shamed. This whole horrific events happened in the garden, whether they ate some piece of fruit and the fruit had some kind of GMO in it. It changed them internally or it knocked Eve out and got her drunk like men have been doing since that day. Since the beginning of recorded history, mankind has been taking women out, even in the old days and trying to get them drunk on one thing or another to loosen them up so that they would become more provocative. Where do you think that all of mankind has got that from the, from, from the garden? Because the apple don't fall far from the tree. And that yeah, expression yeah. may go all the way back to the garden too. What does that mean when you say the apple don't fall far from the tree? It means you're a lot like your daddy. Mm -hmm. You're a lot like your mama. You got a lot of those same predispositions, right? Mankind has some predispositions a lot like the serpent. You know why? It makes it clear in the Bible over and over and over that, uh, we are born in iniquity and that in our flesh, there's no good. And Paul talks about how carnal our members are and that it's programmed to sin. And it's like, well, where the hell did this program come from? Why was I born in iniquity? Why, why, why am I programmed genetically to sin and die? You know, where did this law of sin and death come in? Well, it says it came in through Adam and Eve in the garden. Something happened in that garden. And we could debate that to the end of time. And I have lots of videos on that on my my podcast that get you know down into the really nitty gritty details of what it could be. I don't know. I wasn't there. And we don't have any specific texts that clarify with 100%. A lot of the Dead Sea Scrolls um, reveal a lot of this. But what does authenticate this idea is, is that God shows up in the garden. 
And he declares before he casts, before he curses the Nakash, the serpent, who we believe is the fallen angel Lucifer. And understand when you study angels, you've got all kinds of angels. And I don't know if there's overlap. People get into battle wars over this too. But for example, seraphim angels. In the Old Testament, they were called fiery flying serpents. They're angelic beings who are being called fiery flying serpents. They have wings. And a seraphim means a seraph is a reptilian angel. Whoa. Some angels have yeah, some angels have reptilian qualities. All dragon lore from the Chinese cultures and all the other cultures in the past are connected to angels. I did not know and that, when you, Yeah, and let me tell you what else. Angels are chimeras. They have different genomic sequences running through their body because every living organism ever created by God has DNA in it. That's how God prescribes something. When God made the creeping and crawling thing, he gave it a genetic code so that it would creep and crawl. When God made the, the cattles of the earth, he gave it a genetic code so that cows would look the way cows look. Why, you know, why does a dog look like a dog and bark like a dog and act like a dog? All dogs are the same. Why? They got a genetic prescription. They're, they're prescribed. There's a prescription mm -hmm. that's been placed over them, right? Everything has a genetic prescription. And God made angels and he made them with DNA Is the same way. Is that why they say that Yahweh was a dragon? I've heard that before. That Yahweh was a dragon. I've heard that be I've heard that before too, which I don't believe that, but I've heard that before. Mm -hmm. But so so there's a connectivity between dragons, a cherubim angel. If you look in Isaiah and Ezekiel, we're given information about them. They have three sets of wings, and they have four heads: the head of a man, mm -hmm. the head of a lion, the head of a bull, and the head of an eagle. Only, it's not an eagle. That's the King James translation over centuries. You go back to the original Babylonian and Arcadian cuneiform texts and all of the Hebrew, the, 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 the Chaldee lexicons, it's a griffin and a phoenix. Now, if you put a griffin in your search engine, you're going to see something totally different. You're, and if you put a phoenix into your search engine, you're going to see something totally different. Phoenix is... And this is a this is a emblem for the new world order, right? Out of the ashes of the old birth, the new, the, the the phoenix, and it shows the dollar bills burning up underneath the phoenix, and out of the ashes of the dying. You're, you, are you familiar with the phoenix? Yeah, One. yeah, rising from the ashes type of thing. Yeah, yeah, rising from the ashes. Yeah, so the phoenix is this ancient idea of you. I know, want to show this... you, Dave. I put into an AI art generator. I put because I didn't. I did an episode on ascension technology, and we got into Ezekiel. And Ezekiel's vision, and I put into yeah, the yeah. AI, I put in the description that Ezekiel gives of the of, oh, wow. of the of the spacecraft. Right? If you want to follow That's ancient right. aliens, yeah. yeah, the wheels and the wheels, yeah, the the ancient technology, which gets us to the Book of Enoch, and hopefully we'll get there next. And we, but and, yeah, I want to see it. Let me pull it because the AI generator is going to do better than you know. Yeah, and, and it came up with some interesting stuff. I, th I thought I had one more, but anyways, I'll pull it up here and show you what I got because I used one of them for the thumbnail. And this is one. This was one of my favorite ones here. This one here. So we have the, the holy cow, the horses. We had some people. Yeah, had the, that's insane. Some crazy looking thing, and then there was another one. It pumped and up. I believe that that's accurate. It looks. It God looks uses crazy. technology. Yeah, and then yep, this God was, uses technology. This was another. There's your one. angels. Yeah. They're yeah. So very creepy now, if, and weird. If you were, yeah, they are. Yeah, they look a little because they almost look like they, yeah, almost like Medusa hair on them. But um, so these angels, you know, in Isaiah and Ezekiel, they've got it's they've got 
the head of a lion, the head of a man, and, and the torso of a man, but they have the cloven hoof of, of a bull and a head of a bull and the head of an eagle, which is really a phoenix. Now, a phoenix is not a bird. They've been telling us that for a long time. A fire-breathing bird, it's not a bird. It's a dragon. <laughs> Phoenixes are dragons. And those feathers on that angel wings, they're not bird wings. They're dragon wings. We're dealing with fiery flying dragons. That's what these angels are, the shining ones, the seraphs and the cherubim. They have reptilian qualities. So I believe a fallen reptilian chimera being who has DNA of a human in it, if you got a, a, a man's head and a human torso on you, mm -hmm. then when God made you, he gave you some human DNA. And if you got a lion's head, you got some lion DNA and some reptilian DNA. So they're a chimera. And that'll become relevant when we get to the flood, because that's why the flood came due to the chimerism that we got to get to. So, so this, this now, and, and there's a lot of verses that would suggest that these angels can shapeshift. You know, we're told that they, um, we, we have different accounts that would presume that they can change their shape. Even Paul says that, you know, Satan can masquerade or disguise himself as an angel of light. And a minister of righteousness, that's all of a lot of our religious systems today. They're, they're professing, you know, God and Jesus. And they're just, you know, what did Jesus call them? Uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. We got those all over the place. So, but the word sh that Satan can disguise himself or, or present himself as an angel of light. I think it's uh, in the Greek, meta schizmatii. It's meta to change. Like he can physically change. He, you know, he's not, he's not. He's not under the laws of physics like we are. We live in a four-dimensional time space, height, width, depth, and then time, right? And we're, we're stuck in this construct. These beings are somewhere in between. They are from the spirit realm, but they manifest into our physical four-dimensional time space. Real, not just some ghostly-looking thing, not a spirit. That's why all throughout the Old Testament, they, you know, in, in Genesis 18, when the angels come to tell um, Abraham that they're getting ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and save, and Abraham has to save, pray for Lot. They roll into Abraham's village, you know, and they sit down with him. Abraham tells Sarah to go slaughter the fatted calf. They eat, they drink, they sleep that night. They're physical. They have physicality to them. When they come into our realm, it gets physical. And so, which which may also explain why some of the alien abduction syndromes, you know, uh, these people will come back with physical things that have happened to them, physical things on their arms, physical implants. They'll say it was a spiritual thing. They were taken in their night and sleep. And yet at the same time, something physical happened. It's a metaphysical. It's hard to understand. And that's a whole different direction. But um, so, so anyway, the angel, whether he shapeshifted and came in in his reptilian form or whatever the case may be, he seduced Eve. In my opinion, he seduced her. And then perhaps he took the young virgin and he did what, you know, a lot of males would have done in that situation if they don't have morality and virtue, right? Because there's lots of men, you know, looking at this, that, and the other and cheating on their wives and looking at porn and they'd love to get some young girl drunk and do that. If you don't have moral fiber and substance to you and you had a beautiful young naive woman there, and you 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 were in you were in, in a physically incarnate embodied body, and you have the ability to procreate with your genitals in the book of Genesis. Maybe you're going to go ahead and try something out on Eve, and possibly impregnate her. Let's just say that possibly he did. And then later, she was with Adam, and then conceived, and in the womb are twins. 
and a lot of the old Dead Sea Scrolls reveal Cain and Abel as being twins, half brothers. And we see this all the time today, not all the time, but there's a, a syndrome today called uh, hetomaternal superfecundation, which is where two different men impregnate one woman with two different sperm. And she then gives birth. She has two different yolk sacs, two different uh, sperm and eggs, and two different conceptions in her placenta. And she gives birth to two babies. They have the same biological mother, but they have two different biological fathers. Whoa! And it's always it's always been very common. And if you if you Google that right now, you'll the internet will show you tons of pictures of people who maybe it's a half. Maybe it's a, a, you know, a white woman who slept with a white guy and a black guy and the two babies come out because they've got those genomes, right? And so, you know, that's a theory, right? Could something like that happen? Because here's what gets interesting. When Cain and Abel are born, every verse about Cain only implies that he's wicked and everything about Abel only implies that he's righteous. And all of the verses that expound about Cain talk about him being wicked and all of the ancient historians like Josephus who 2000 years ago was wrote the antiquities of the Jews considered the greatest ancient historian of biblical stuff. He writes that every, it was well known by all of the ancient rabbis and all of the scholars that every single succeeding generation of Cain was only more evil continually. Every preceding genealogical record that they only got worse. They only got more wicked and that there was none that were righteous of the law. Question, Dave, who was talking to Cain? Because apparently Cain was be allegedly from, again, the conspiracies or whatever you want to beliefs that Cain was the only one that who was being talked to. What are your thoughts on that? I don't know. There's so much I don't know, right? That's the problem with all this is we weren't there and we've got these esoteric accounts. We're like, we're, we're putting breadcrumbs together to make a, a, a cake. Yeah. I mean, the more I the more I know about the situation, the more I don't know. Maybe because... theories and conjecture. Maybe was it because, again, he came from this, right? We have the the legends of the succubi and the incubi where were they were they born absolutely from this yeah. metaphysical right merlin his his father was a demon yeah. a demonic entity and he slept with his mother yes. so maybe is it because they have this 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 other gene that is a, a supernatural right almost like again like this nephilim I it, elohim I, I call it the nephilim gene i call it the nephilim gene because uh if you study the origin of the incubi and succubi they only come from cain's lineage mm-hmm it's, mm -hmm. it's Cain's seven descendants down. Seven's a powerful number in numerology in the Bible. Um, seven descendants from Cain is the great Tubal Cain, which is used in the Masonic rituals. And Tubal Cain's beautiful sister is Nama. She was called beautiful because the fallen angels in the book that the book of Enoch references, they taught her all of the beautification rituals of how to paint the eyes, how to do the hair, and how to put on the perfume. And she was a seducer. And a lot of people believe that she was, you know, the legends go that she was beguiling men. But then also, this is where the succubus Nama comes from. The one who 
sleeps with men, uh, comes to them in their sleep and in their dreams and takes their semen and then goes and impregnates another woman. So that's some interesting stuff there, right? Those legends of the succubus and the incubus, the supernatural stuff. So anyway, to make a long story short, when you and, I, and I'm getting ready to do a video on this, which is a really just jam-packed video on all the reasons why history teaches that Cain and all of his lineage are only the wicked ones, um, and that Seth and all of his clan are the righteous ones. So this takes us to the Proto-Evangelium. This is probably the most important part of it all, right? So we have Adam and Eve have fallen in the garden. They've been tricked by the serpent and they've partaken of the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And now their eyes are open and it's their decision to start moving forward and living this world. They've been shamed. They've been exiled, but they're still God's representations on earth. They did have dominion over the earth, but they just gave it to the serpent. And now he's got power and dominion and they've been cast out. But before he casts them out, God gives them the first prophecy, which is the prophecy that runs. It's the prophecy of prophecies. The prophecy is that I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. The word enmity means perpetual hostility and conflict. I, God, now that Adam and Eve have been shamed and they realize that they're naked and they've covered up their body parts and the serpent's got caught, whatever, God's pronouncing a declaration over them. He's pronouncing a future battle between the seed of the woman and between the seed of the serpent. The word seed is Zara. It can mean a literal seed, like a seed of fruit, like I'm going to plant a tomato seed in the ground, or it means a seed, sperm or semen that's planted into a womb that leads to a seed line. Okay. Now, the prophecy goes, I, God, uh, will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Two bloodlines are going to be born out of this, and they're going to hate each other's guts, and they're going to battle all the way. And then he goes on. The second half of the prophecy is, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head, serpent, but you're going to bruise or injure his heel. This is the prophecy of the Savior. Adam and Eve have been shamed. They're being cast out, but they know on the way out the door that even though they've been tricked and they've given up paradise, that one of their future offspring has been prophesied to come back and redeem all of those made in the image of Adam and Eve and bring them and buy them back into heaven and into the garden. So they have this knowledge. So at least they can leave knowing that, hey, somewhere in our genealogical record will come the Savior but the serpent has that knowledge too. He knows that when they leave that garden, one of their future offspring are going to produce this one who's going to crush his head. So the genetic battle begins, not between black and white people or, or brown and white people or the way that they use racism today, which is what the fallen ones have tricked us all into doing. We're all the human race, Juan. You know, we all bleed red. We're all born out of a womb. We're all the human race. And what they've done is they've tricked us into using this word race. We have the African-American race and the Caucasian race and the Hispanic race. And it's like, no, actually, we're all the human race. We have different ethnic groups and, and, and different, uh, uh, you know, genomes or however you want to put it. So, so the real racism goes back to the beginning. It was, goes back to Genesis the story of the, ge the genetic story of Adam and Eve and how that was corrupted by the serpent and the fallen ones.
it goes back to the seed of the woman. That's the Adamic race. You can refer to them as the Adamic race. You can refer to them as the human race. Some people call them the Hebrew race. Some people call them um, the Adamites. And so right out of the gate, you've got the seed. Of, so, so when Adam and Eve and the serpent leave the garden, there's already a prophecy that's been enacted on them. A seed war. One of the future seed lines of Adam and Eve are going to crush the serpent's head. But then also one of the serpent's seed lines are going to bruise this one who's coming, the Savior. They're going to bruise his heel. So it's a physical seed line. People try to spiritualize it. This is what people, theologians do to this day. This is their uh, hermeneutics. They say that half the, half the prophecy is literal and the other half is spiritual. That I, God, will put enmity between the, you, the, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman is going to bruise your head or crush your head and you're going to bruise his heel. They say the seed of the woman is going to lead to the Messiah through the, the royal line of David the Davidic line, the tribe of Judah, and lead to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he's going to die for humanity on the cross and crush the serpent's head. It's a literal physical seed line. But then they go to say, but the serpent seed line is just a spiritual seed line. It's just a spiritual seed line. It's just people who are human beings, but they fall astray, and they're just bad people, and they're possessed with evil spirits, and they fulfill the negative aspect of the proto-evangelium. I believe that for a long time, but now I take it literal because guess what? Three chapters later, that's what we see happen. First, we see Cain and Abel come out. Cain is wicked and evil. Abel is righteous. And it seems like Satan's already on the warpath because doesn't he not now know that one of Adam and Eve's children are going to crush his head? So he puts it in the mind of Cain. The apple don't fall far from the tree to snuff out Abel. And he does that successfully. But guess what? God, the word Seth means to recompense or compensate. Right away, God compensates them with another baby. And the enemy realizes this ain't going to be so easy. I mean, they're going to keep having children. And um, so then he realizes, but wait a sec. What if I could change their seed line? What if I could interbreed with their seed line? What if I could introduce my seed into their seed line? Because the battle is between the two seed lines. You have God's seed, which is Adam and Eve. He told them to be fruitful and multiply. And all those who come from Adam and Eve are of the Adamic nature and the Adamic race made in God's image and in his likeness. And then you have the serpent race, which is a hybrid race. It's half human, half serpent, right? Half, half fallen angel, we should say. And so that's what we see happen in Genesis 6. Now, a lot of people do not subscribe to what I just said in Genesis 3, but they do subscribe to what I'm saying in Genesis 6, which is this. Any person can pull out their King James Bible or whatever translation you want to use and read Genesis 6. Three short chapters later from the garden, and this is what we're told. Um, that uh, How does it start? Um, Oh, when men begin to multiply in, in those days, uh, and, and um, then the Elohim um, took the daughters of men and they born children to them. These are the children who become the mighty men of renown, men of, of myth or men of renown, the mighty men, the men of renown. And so the Elohim are the angels and they, they descended down and they took the human women and they copulated with them. And they made the hybrids. Okay. So 
we have now we have these two different groups living on earth. We have Adam and Eve and the 10 patriarchs that lead all the way down to Noah, you know, Enoch and Methuselah and Lamech and all of them. And then we have Cain's lineage who many of the old texts reveal that the fallen angels were actually copulating with the daughters of Cain and makes it, making this hybrid race. And you have these two opposing seed lines. You have the holy Adamic seed and you have the fallen hybrid satanic seed and they're battling each other and they're going to continue to battle each other all through the Bible. And many stories in the old Testament reflect this. For example, when Moses 400 years out of captivity of the Hebrews in Egypt and Moses liberates them and they spend 40 years trekking across the desert and they finally make it to the promised land. Moses is already aware that there are giants living in the promised land. Um, these are the men of renown. That word means the ones of myth, the ones who will become of mythological status and live on through all throughout humanity. Moses has heard about them. He knows they're in there. He knows he can't just stroll into the promised land. There's giant tribes living there. And so he sends out his two best. He sends out Joshua and Caleb for 40 days and 40 nights to spy out the land. And they come back and they give the evil report. And they say, this is a land that eateth up its inhabitants, which is in reference to cannibalism. Um, and they go on to say, we saw the sons of Anak there. And they are the remnant of the giants. And it, the, the word giant used, this is Numbers 13 for those interested. The one, the, the word used is the Nephilim. The remnant of the Nephilim are still alive after the flood. And... Um, and, and they go on to say that they have these huge walled cities with these huge, and these are men of giant stature, and that we look like grasshoppers to them. Um, and then later, you know, we learn about King Og of Bashan, who had to have an iron bed that was made twelve you know, cubits long to, to support his height and his weight. And and then we get a thousand years later to a greatly genetically diluted version of them, because there's been intermingling along the way, called Goliath. A six-fingered, six-toed Gittite from Gath who carries 125 pounds of armor, a big, huge spear that he can thrust through multiple men and carry him around, and he's 10 foot tall. And David has to do battle with him. And he is referred to as a remnant of the giants. Uh, although I would say that he has a lot, at this point, he has a lot more human DNA than he has the fallen Nephilim DNA because it's been greatly diluted since the pre-flood times. And so for your listeners, for the ones who are not maybe aware of a lot of this stuff, I'm, I'm not doing a great job articulating it in order. But what I would say about the flood, and if there's anything you want to say, Juan, I'll, I'll pause. But I, before time is up, I want to just get into why the flood came and really elucidate that detail and get into the chimerism before the flood. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to say, yeah, continue. And if anything, I mean, worst case, I could always have you back on to keep on going with this because it's very interesting but yeah continue because goliath i've always wondered about that of goliath he was a giant and then they w w the technology that they got from them after the fact right after they had killed off his yeah. brothers as well so there's this hinting at it and now you're, you're talking about other things other references to giants that i wasn't aware of in the bible so yeah so yeah, that's very interesting um so okay We'll just we'll, we'll we'll jump past Genesis three the, the the garden. We know that there's a seed war declared. The seed of the woman is going to do battle with the seed of the serpent. The serpent has a seed. We just have to come to terms with that 
And we see that three chapters later. The fallen ones come down and they take the females and they sleep with them and they create the hybrids. So these are demigods. This is what the Greeks 2,000 years later would talk about. All legends and all myth come from a kernel of truth. The flood, the great flood of Noah, wiped out an entire ancient record that only is spoken about now in myth. And so when the Greeks, one of my favorite subjects in school, Greek mythology, when Zeus, the god, it's new vernacular now, Juan. We're not dealing with, we're not using the word angels. We're just changing up some words. And we've got a new age story. Same story. This is after the flood. The god came down from Mount Olympus and he took the female, the human female, and he slept with her and he made the demigod, half human, half god, who's a giant with power like Hercules and Achilles, and he would become famous and men would worship him and he would live on throughout the, the oral traditions. That is taken from the Bible. Make no mistake about it. That's what the Bible says happened before the flood. They didn't call them gods, although Elohim are considered small g gods, the Elohim, the small g angelic beings who came down, you know, and uh, slept with the women, they produced the Nephilim, the hybrids who you could later would re we call them demigods. Now, the book of Enoch, which is a pretty amazing book. The best one is the Ethiopian version. Um, that's the one that seems to be authenticated. It was in, I believe it was in the original King James 1604 edition, which was an 80 book canon which then later was reduced to a 66-book canon, right? And that's some of the uh, things that bothered you is, if you were born in 1604 or 1611 and you said, Mom, I really want a Bible, she'd go down and get you a Bible from wherever you get them in 1611, the printing press, and that Bible would have an 80-book King James Bible with the current 66 books and 14 books of the Apocrypha. But then over the next couple hundred years, as you move into the 17 and 1800s, Somebody decided to strip away 14 books, and now our current book is the 66-book King James Bible. And I love that 66-book King James Bible, but I also go back to the original 80-book King James Bible, as well as the Dead Sea Scrolls like the Book of Enoch. So the Book of Enoch, we know for a fact that first century Jews knew it, were reading from it, and were studying it. That, that's become absolutely authenticated. Most paleographic authors date it to at least 250, 300 years B.C., before Christ. Um, in the New Testament, both uh, Peter and Jude, the Apostle Peter and Jude, directly quote the book of Enoch. That was a book that was being passed around during their day. They were very well familiar with this fall. If you go and read in the New Testament, King James Bible, in the, the book of Peter and Jude, they talk about the angels who left their first estate. The ones who went after strange flesh, and they even reference back before the flood in the days of Noah, and that God had to put them in everlasting chains of darkness under the earth for, for the abomination that they committed. They're talking about this, this situation where the angels took on the women. And so, um, so the book of Enoch, and there have been some newer uh, knockoffs, so you have, to, you have to do your homework when you study the book of Enoch. But the original book of Enoch that still exists today in the Ethiopian King James canon over there in Africa, which is the only Christian nation in the country that I'm aware of, that book of Enoch describes a situation where the watcher angels made an agreement. They descended from the higher heavens into the highest place in the Syrian Middle East mountains called Mount Hermon. 
So you begin to see some similarities. In the Greeks, they talk about coming from Mount Olympus, and they descended down and took the women. Well, in the Book of Enoch, they came from Mount Hermon, and they descended down the mountain, and they took the women. And they made an oath or a pact. They knew they were getting ready to step in as a major quicksand, but they didn't care. They knew they were getting ready to defy the Most High God. It makes it clear in the Book of Enoch that they were not compatible. The spiritual realm was not meant to be blended with the physical realm. This is the absolute root of all secret societies and the as above, so below. The union or the yoking of the spirit with the physical. Uh, not just spiritually, though, because the origin of it all is the yoking of it, literally. The physical union of the spirit realm interacting and yoking with the physical realm. This is what that tree of knowledge of good and evil is. Is that you have, God gives, God gives you this reproductive power. You have this power, even in our own right, to create a human being and how we raise that child and, and what it does with its child and its child and its child. You know, Think about all of the good it could produce over time or all of the evil it could do over time. I believe that that knowledge of good and evil has a lot to do with procreation and, and sex, which is such a, 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 a taboo in our world and our culture for that very reason. And yet not one of us exists today without the fact that our parents came together and broke that taboo and had sex. So, and not um, only that Dave, but I just covered Kenneth Grant, the night side of Eden. And it's very, oh, wow. they're, they're all about that. It's very sexual. It's all, all the occult is it goes back to sex. So you're, you're onto something with that. Cause I never, heard anybody really focusing on that 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 being the secret and that's again that would be why now secret societies people such as Aleister Crowley and all these other occultists they invert it and they pervert it because again it's all about the inversion but it's always that's centered right. around the well, sexual truth. aspect of it you're darn right it is most of the occult that you study is real you know if you study a ritual you know Crowley started the the Brotherhood of Saturn in the 1920s. And if you study his rituals, how to open the eye of Saturn, those rituals work. That is very real. And the only difference is, is it's just a different spirit. You're either, you know, I hate to use the word channeling or tapping into because it's an occult term, but it's not a biblical term, but you're either meditating on the word of God and tapping into the Holy Spirit of God, or you're tapping into an occult spirit and the occult spirit is going to use the same mechanisms as the Holy Spirit, and it's going to invert everything. You're exactly right. So that's why when you study all Satanism and a lot of the occult, you know, Aleister Crowley is the one who taught backmasking, you know, play music backwards, hang the cross upside down, and say the word amen backwards, do rituals backwards. I mean, you know, uh, he's a fascinating guy. So was Kenneth Grant. I, but uh, Yeah, they were both you know, Aleister, associates. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Kenneth Grant was Aleister Crowley's protege. Mm-hmm. And um, um, as was uh, uh, oh, what's his face that did the uh, Babylon working ritual? Jack Parsons. Was, uh, Jack, Par- Jack Parsons. Yeah, that's another yeah, fancy. L. Ron one. Hubbard. All the the yeah. greatest hits of you all, right? And I, and I don't like to call them greatest because I think that they were degenerates. But you you catch my drift. Anybody yeah. who listens to my show knows I absolutely despise Crowley. And and, and there's a word for you, Juan. You said degenerate. Mm-hmm. So if you trace that word back to its origin. It's the ones who had the hybrid DNA when the Adamic race was adulterated or what the book of Enoch refers to as bastard. Mm. They were bastardized. The word degenerate was born. 
they had a de-evolution of the gene pool. Not the way it would be the way people want to pretend now, like like Hitler. You know, he wanted he he misconstrued it all. So he's looking at these uh, well these people that he called Jews as this inferior race or someone some white supremacist or someone may look at another group, a black group or a Hispanic group, whatever. But they're a degenerate race because they're a different color. No, 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 no. You got it all wrong. Go back to the source. The degenerate was the human being, the seed of the woman made in the Adamic race, made in the image of God, who's now living on earth with a hybrid race who's been adulterated, fallen angel, half angel, half human hybrid. And, and the book of Enoch refers to them as the first bastards. Now, this is interesting because all of these ancient words, you know, they all have come forward to today, including the word hero. I got to expand on that. But the word bastard today is used in this context. I was born out of wedlock. My mom and my dad had sex and they conceived and I was born and I'm called a bastard. That's not the real definition. That's a bastardized version of the word bastard. Where it comes from is these fallen angels illegally took the daughters of men as wives and had sex with them. They weren't even the same species. They were of the angelic race, which is a very close race to human race. It says in the Bible they were made, we were made very close to the angels. They weren't the same race. And it was one species of a, you know, mixing with another species and cross-contaminating those two genomes. And so it wasn't considered a true union. They were not legal wives, and therefore those children are considered bastards. But you could see how that could be misconstrued over five millennia to my mom and my dad are married, so they're bastards. Does that make sense? Absolutely, and and that's why they were wiped out as well, because and they kept the bloodline of Noah, and that you know the, right now the rest is that's history. exactly right. So so now what history is taught is is that Cain and his evil vile progeny, including Tubal Cain, who was the master of, of weapons and and war, um, that that wicked seed line was snuffed out with the flood. But the problem with that is, is we begin to see that seed line pick it up immediately after the flood. So the re- so let's get back to the, 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 and how are we doing on time, Juan? We got another, we can go for another 10, 15 minutes or so. Okay. So, um, so we have these hybrids now. They've been created. The fallen angels have slept with the daughters of men. They've created the demigods, the hybrids, and now you have hybrids living on the earth. When you study the Bible closely, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you learn what they were doing. They were into blood drinking, cannibalism, bestiality. In the book of Enoch, the book of Jasher, the book of Giants, the book of Jubilees, and all the Dead Sea Scrolls, it says that these fallen ones began to mix one species of another in order to provoke the Lord. Not just human DNA anymore, but they're mixing all genetic species And this is why when we go back into the ancient record, and I don't care what it is, it could be Babylonian cuneiform tablets. If you do a Babylonian search right now on Nimrod, you're going to get a bull, an old uh, Babylonian cuneiform tablet with a bull with wings and a bull's head and a man's man's torso, a minotaur. Um, If you look at Greek mythology, you're going to get, you know, Pegasus and you're going to get all of the different, you know, centaurs and all of that. Medusa, half serpent, half, you know, mermaids and mermans, which also come from the Bible. The Philistines worship Dagon, the fish god, who had the head and body of a man and the torso of a fish. And um, when you look at Greek mythology, Roman mythology, Chinese mythology, Norse mythology, Sumerian mythology, all you see is ancient iconography of chimeras. The riddle of the Sphinx, the head of a pharaoh superimposed on the body of a lion, 
it was nothing but cross-contamination of human DNA with angel DNA. And then they began to mix human DNA with animal DNA, which is going to give you your different combinations of a minotaur who's got the head of a bull and the body of a man, or a centaur, which has the head of a man and the body of a bull. Um, you're, so you're mixing human and animal DNA. And then you're mixing different animals with different animals to make chimeras. And there was about 800, 900 years of this going on before the flood. Now, in Genesis 2, when God made everything, he made everything after its own image and its own likeness. Now, when you look those up in the original Hebrew, the, the strongest concordance goes out of its way to make it clear that there is a genetic partitioning that if you mix these two, you've gone outside of the normal genetic partitioning. In other words, you don't breed dogs with cats. Nobody would even try. It just isn't natural. Nobody, everybody knows that. You don't breed horses with dogs. They're not compatible with each other. They were made after their own image. They were made after their own kind. They have their own genetic prescription that God gave them, and it was good. And so they began to mix all of these. So now when you start getting all of this cross-contamination of all the humans and all the hybrids and all the animals, then you come to a place many, 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 many chapters or a few chapters later, but many hundreds of years later where everything has been adulterated. And it says in Genesis 6 that all flesh has been contaminated. All flesh but Noah's line. Because you say, well, why was Noah spared? Because it makes it clear that Noah was a just man. He was a righteous man. But more importantly, he was pure in his generations. The word is tamim. It means to be genetically spotless. It's not morally spotless, genetically spotless. In other words, he was still made in the original carbon copy image going back 10 generations to Adam and Eve with no hybridization. He was still the authentic, genuine source of the seed of the woman. But up at that point, all the rest of the earth had been genetically contaminated. All of the rest of the human race had been interbred with. They'd been genetically mixed. And all of the animals, damn near all of the animals on earth had been mixed. Which explains why God then says to Noah, build a huge ark. And I will bring to you, Noah, all the animals. Two of every species, male and female, made after their own image and after their own kind. No hybrids are coming on the boat. The boat is a DNA preservation capsule for everything that God made originally that still remains that hasn't been adulterated by the fallen ones who've cross-contaminated everything. And so when he gets pure horses and pure zebras and pure giraffes and pure humans and he puts all those pure racial purity onto the boat, he hits the great reset button. He floods the earth. He wipes out all of the Nephilim and all of the abominations that exist on earth. And the book of Enoch makes it clear. They're not fully human. They're not fully angel. They're somewhere in between. They don't have the spirit of a man like God breathed into Adam. Don't feel bad for them. These aren't some spiritual be These aren't some sweet beings that you'll love. They have demonic spirits inside of them. And when you watch movies like 300 and many of our other movies like, um, um, uh, What's the one with the eye? Um, the, uh, um, oh, crap. I'm blanking. With, but with the eye? You'll see a... Yeah, uh, 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 yeah with the eye. Um, Middle Earth, you know, and uh, it's all about magic and sorcery. Oh, Lord Pretty of the good. Rings? There's a series, the, the Hobbit, yeah. Look at those creatures that come from the Middle Earth who want to kill and eat the flesh of the humans. 
Yeah, I have tons of videos where I show the different groups who portray the fallen ones, the Nephilim and the hybrids, because they're all the same. They all have the demonic spirit living inside of a human-like body. You can tell that they look like they're humans, but they're not fully human. Same with like the Time Machine, the movie. You have the Morlocks who live underground and feast off the humans. Hollywood's just it, absolutely immersed with it. And it would make sense that if, if we're to follow the, the lore and the genealogy that Maybe there was a, a reason why God took Enoch, right, from the very beginning, right? Because maybe he understood yeah. that this was going to happen. And if we follow the genealogy, he was what Noah's great, 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 great grandfather or something or other. So it would make yeah. sense. He was Absolutely. one of the only people to, right, to walk with God and not, yeah. not die. Is that, is, yeah. And then what does he yeah, become at the end of it all? If you keep following the books of Enoch, he becomes this, this, this what I've called him like the holder of reality. He becomes this little, this little God, the lesser Yahweh, this little, yeah. right? So they call him, Meta, they call him Metatron mm -hmm. and Kabbalah mm -hmm. and Jewish mysticism. Um, so anyway, so you, you say, okay, the flood came, it wiped away that ancient record of all of that chimera ism. Um, Genesis and Genesis and revelation uh, go together like a lock and a key the same reasons why God had to destroy the earth the first time is because they contaminated all flesh. Well, that's the same reason why you'll have to come back in the second coming because the days of Noah are returning. That's what Jesus says when they ask him what will be the sign of the end of the age, right? One of the things he says is when the days of Noah return, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Well, what, what defined the days of Noah differently than any other time in human history? People still claim that the reason the flood came was to deal with sin. No. Jesus, you know, dealt with sin on the cross. There was sin from the very beginning. Cain killed Abel, and we've been killing each other ever since. And and we're and people are dying today from that. The reason that the flood came was to deal with the genetic abomination, right? So, to me, the most simplistic version is really quite simple. Genesis is this genetic story where God made everything after its own image and its own kind and its own likeness according to His own desire, His own genetic prescription. And then the fallen ones came in and they totally usurped that and started recreating it and marring it and creating it in their own image. And those two are going to play out in tandem side by side. And it goes all the way through. Jesus is the monogenes. He's the one of a kind genetics. And that's a complicated matter. But and then the, we know that the Antichrist is the inversion of that. The Antichrist is going to come from this serpent seed line. He's going to have that fallen reptilian hybrid reptilian DNA. And, um, and, and, you know, he, he wants to take power and be worshiped over the earth. And then the mark of the beast is genetic modification. I mean, when you take that, you have now been adopted back into the beast system. You've, you've taken the, the, it's going to alter the DNA. It could be the third strand or whatever the case may be. And now you're no longer human. You're, you know, and that's, that's the birth of transhumanism and it ties in with emergence with AI because there's prophecies that mankind was going to mix with artificial intelligence. There's Old Testament and New Testament prophecies about where we're at, that we're going to merge with machines. And that's the final system, by the way. After that, it's going to get real ugly. Mm -hmm. So and so it, we're back to genetic modification, GMO, everything they can do to destroy our flesh. That's why there's so much cancer and so much disease. And it would make a lot of sense because I don't know if you're familiar with Joseph Lumpkin's work where... He wrote the book, The Origins of Evil, and he writes about how when this flood came, right, we followed the, I think it's the second law of thermodynamics, energy cannot be created nor destroyed, it can only be transformed. Well, if they killed this 
and you added on there that it was it wasn't the soul of a man it was a hybrid right they weren't really they weren't they were half angel half chimera half nephilim half elohim whatever they whatever it was they weren't human yeah. so therefore yeah. when they were destroyed their spirit still exists right. in this realm there and they're angry exactly and that's where we get that's our right. origins of evil demonic entities that's and right. it would also fall in line with the conspiracy if you will that these higher ups that are trying to quite literally do exactly that corrupt this genetic bloodline they are possessing these people because we i mean we yeah. see that all the time that the yeah. the elites are worshiping these extracurricular yeah. gods if you will with little yeah. g's so they're and Lump, uh, Lumpkin, they tapped into it. Yeah, Lumpkin, he really painted it for me that way. That they're like, yeah, and they're still trying to meddle with the affairs of man, even after Absolutely. they were quote unquote destroyed. The Book but, of Enoch describes that one. It mm -hmm. talks about that when the flood came and destroyed the giant Nephilim on the earth, that they released their disembodied satanic spirits, and that these spirits would go on to haunt mankind for their role that yeah. they played in this unholy union to the very bitter end these are the same spirits that are living in some of the people when jesus is in the synagogue and all of a sudden they stand up and say you know they make this profession that you know why have you come to torture us and are you going to send us back to the pit i am they, they've been around <laughs> yeah yeah i am legion they know what's coming they know the promised one is coming mm -hmm. and um and so you know when we see that in the in the last days in revelation 9 11 when they open up the key to the bottomless pit and the spirit of uh, Apollyon or Abaddon the destroyer is let out and he embodies the person of the anti which is where CERN is built <laughs> yeah exactly yeah where they, where they claim that they can break a they can break a hole through the fabric of space and time and open up a portal to a higher dimension which is a fancy way of saying tapping into the spirit realm mm -hmm. the spirit realm is the fifth dimension and higher absolutely and I've done videos on that too the age of Aquarius and the fifth dimension that's coming so so um yeah, you know, it's uh, to me, it, 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 there's a lot of Hollywood and a lot of predictive programming that really reveals a lot of this, and it kind of connects Genesis to Revelation. Um, you know, they, we're, we're moving into an age now of merging man with machine, or as the Bible refers to it, the iron and the clay. Clay is always represents humanity. In uh, Daniel 2.43, the prophet Daniel talks about the beast systems from Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar all the way down to the final one before the return of Christ. And the last system is the miry clay that they try to merge the iron with. Miry clay in the Bible is humanity. God is the potter. We are the clay. Adam came from the clay of the earth. So humans are referred to in the Bible as clay that God molds however he wants. Iron in the Bible represents technology, something that has to be forged, a weapon, for example. And the, by the way, the serpent seed line, Tubalcane, is the one who made it. Um, and so uh, this idea that the iron will merge with clay, and it gets even more interesting because that verse says that they will mingle the iron and the clay, and they will mingle with the seed of men. Interesting. We see the word seed again. Yeah. And the word mingle comes from the word mongrel. We have to look at genetics through a different lens than what we've been taught for thousands of years. This is no longer about black versus white or whatever the case may be with today's paradigm of racism. We've been tricked into doing that. Um, this is about humans versus non-humans or partial humans, hybrid humans, wanting to distort it, right? That's the enmity that exists. And um, 
So they want to mingle the iron with the clay, and they're going to, it says that they will try to do it through the seed of men. That's the semen, the DNA, the genes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dave, I'd, I'd love to have you back on to talk about the, the, the Hollywood. And I love the, the series that you did on Conan the Barbarian. And oh, yeah. I was hoping that we'd be able to talk because that guy was also into some esoteric stuff. And I had one of the li listeners exactly. of the show who commented on YouTube and they were talking about, oh, you should cover. I forgot the guy's name, but him. And I was like, oh, OK, I'm going to actually have somebody on who might know a little bit about him because you've done a series on it. So the next time I have you on, Dave, because you you absolutely crushed it. And yeah, this that one's a good one, Juan, because, you know, when you study the pharaohs, you study the ancient Book of the Dead and all of their traditions. They claim that the pharaohs could shapeshift into the crocodile gods. Mm -hmm. And there's all kinds of litany about that, right? Well, when you look at uh, the, the movie you just talked about with Conan, that guy is referred to as an ancient demigod or ancient pharaoh. And it shows him shapeshift in and out. And it, it brings in so much of this stuff. It'd be a good thing if someone wanted the cliff notes in Hollywood form, it would be that Conan movie. Yeah, yeah. And I checked it out, actually, because they have it up on Netflix, right? Of course, the lizard people would have it up on Netflix. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, Dave, this is great. I had a, a – this is an amazing conversation. And the way – you know your stuff. I mean, you break it down. You know what you're talking about. You've obviously studied this at length. And I encourage anybody who is interested to, to learn about the intricacies – to check out your, your YouTube channel, the Proto Evangelium and the it. Days of Noah, because you go hard in the paint, and not just on bi biblical stuff. I mean, you go talk about the occult, you talk about Crowley Parsons, you talk about, yeah. I mean, you talk about it all, which I've listened to a whole bunch of your videos. And a lot of it's on the UFO stuff, Juan, mm -hmm. simply because mm -hmm. today we have a new vernacular. We got these extraterrestrials coming down from the stars, taking humans abducting them and mixing their DNA together to create half human, half alien hybrids. Same story, different verse. It's exactly what happened before the flood. We've just renamed them. We're now calling them aliens. We're calling it space. And um, so I get into a lot of that too. It's just a new age, you know, new vernacular, but it's the same old thing. Um, but uh, anyway, I know we're out of time. So yeah, no, no worries, Dave. I appreciate you coming on and talking with me tonight. And I'm looking My forward pleasure. to doing, doing it yeah, again. I enjoyed it. Likewise. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, make sure everybody, the the Proto-Evangelium and the Days of Noah, I'll post a link in the description. And as always, everyone, have a great night wherever you are, or good morning, wherever you're listening to this, and I'll see you on the other side.
What's the hand when breaking? What's the cartel? Push a ball? Do I rap? Do I sing? Do I preach? I don't know. Do I lack anything via love? No, I don't. But we gotta be a warrior too. Cause that's just what warriors do. Like a subway, wanna spin up at the center of the nexus, me. They wanna 